Section 19 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. William Ewart Gladstone, Part 2. The indignation created by Gladstone's letters extended beyond England to France and Germany, and probably had no slight influence in the final overthrow of the King of Naples, whose government was the most unjust, tyrannical, and cruel in Europe, and perhaps on the face of the globe. Its chief evil was not in chaining suspected politicians of character and rank to the vilest felons, and immuring them in underground cells too filthy and horrible to be approached even by physicians, for months and years before their mock trials began, but in the utter perversion of justice in the courts by judges who dared not go counter to the dictation or even wishes of the executive government, with its deadly and unconquerable hatred of everything which looked like political liberty. All these things and others Mr. Gladstone exposed with an eloquence glowing and burning with righteous and fearless indignation. The Neapolitan government attempted to make a denial of the terrible charges, but the defense was feeble and inconclusive, and the statesman who made the accusation was not convicted even of exaggeration although the heartless tyrant may have felt that he was no more guilty than other monarchs bent on sustaining absolutism at any cost and under any plea in the midst of atheists assassins and anarchists it is said that warren hastings under the terrible invectives of burke felt himself to be the greatest criminal in the world even when he was conscious of having rendered invaluable services to great britain which the country in the main acknowledged in one sense, therefore, a statement may be rhetorically exaggerated, even when the facts which support it are incontrovertible, as the remorseless logic of Calvin leads to deductions which no one fully believes, the decretum quidem horrible, as Calvin himself confessed. But is it easy to convict Mr. Gladstone of other exaggeration than that naturally produced by uncommon ability to array facts so as to produce conviction? which indeed is the talent of the advocate rather than that of the judge the year eighteen forty eight was a period of agitation and revolution in every country in europe and most governments being unpopular were compelled to suppress riots and insurrections and to maintain order under exceeding difficulties england was no exception and public discontents had some justification in the great deficiency in the national treasury the distress of ireland and the friction which new laws however beneficent have to pass through about this time mr disraeli was making himself prominent as an orator and as a foe to the administration he was clever in nicknames and witty expressions as when he dubbed the blue book of the import duties committee the greatest work of imagination that the nineteenth century had produced mr gladstone was no match for this great parliamentary fencer in irony in wit in sarcasm and in bold attacks but even in a house so fond of jokes as that of the commons he commanded equal if not greater attention by his luminous statements of fact and the earnest solemnity of his manner benjamin disraeli entered parliament in eighteen thirty seven as a sort of democratic tory when the death of king william the fourth necessitated a general election his maiden speech as a member for maidstone was a failure not because he could not speak well but because a certain set determined to crush him and made such a noise that he was obliged to sit down declaring in a loud voice that the time would come when they should hear him he was already famous for his novels and for a remarkable command of language the pet of aristocratic women and admired generally for his wit and brilliant conversation although he provoked criticism for the vulgar finery of his dress and the affectation of his manners 
already he was intimate with lord lyndhurst a lion in the highest aristocratic circles and universally conceded to be a man of genius why should not such a man at the age of thirty-three aspire to a seat in parliament his future rival gladstone though five years his junior had already been in parliament three years and was distinguished as an orator before disraeli had a chance to enter the house of commons as a supporter of sir robert peel but his extraordinary power was not felt until he attacked his master on the repeal of the corn laws nor was he the rival of mr gladstone until the tory party was disintegrated and broken into sections in eighteen forty seven however he became the acknowledged leader of the most conservative section the party of protection while gladstone headed the followers of peel on the disruption of the whig administration in eighteen fifty one under lord john russell who was not strong enough for such unsettled times lord derby became premier and disraeli took office under him as chancellor of the exchequer a post which he held for only a short time the coalition cabinet under lord aberdeen having succeeded that of lord derby keeping office during the crimean war and leaving the tories out in the cold until eighteen fifty eight of this famous coalition ministry mr gladstone naturally became chancellor of the exchequer having exhibited remarkable financial ability in demolishing the arguments of disraeli when he introduced his budget as chancellor in eighteen fifty one but although the rivalry between the two great men began about this time neither of them had reached the lofty position which they were destined to attain they both held subordinate posts the prime minister was the earl of aberdeen but lord palmerston was the commanding genius of the cabinet controlling as foreign minister the diplomacy of the country in stormy times he was experienced versatile liberal popular and ready in debate his foreign policy was vigorous and aggressive raising england in the estimation of foreigners and making her the most formidable power in europe his diplomatic and administrative talents were equally remarkable so that he held office of some kind in every successive administration but one for fifty years he was secretary at war as far back as the contest with napoleon and foreign secretary in eighteen thirty during the administration of lord grey his official life may almost be said to have been passed in the foreign office he was acquainted with all its details and as indefatigable in business as he was witty in society to the pleasures of which he was unusually devoted he checked the ambition of france in eighteen forty on the eastern question and brought about the cordial alliance between france and england in the crimean war mr gladstone did not agree with lord palmerston in reference to the crimean war like lord aberdeen his policy was pacific avoiding war except in cases of urgent necessity but in this matter he was not only in the minority in the cabinet but not on the popular side the press and the people and the commons being clamorous for war as already shown it was one of the most unsatisfactory wars in english history conducted to a successful close indeed but with an immense expenditure of blood and money and with such an amount of blundering in management as to bring disgrace rather than glory on the government and the country but it was not for mr gladstone to take a conspicuous part in the management of that unfortunate war his business was with the finances to raise money for the public exigencies and in this business he never had a superior he not only selected with admirable wisdom the articles to be taxed but in his budgets he made the minutest details interesting he infused eloquence into figures his audiences would listen to his financial statements for five continuous hours without wearying but his greatest triumph as finance minister was in making the country accept without grumbling an enormous income tax because he made plain its necessity the mistakes of the coalition ministry in the management of the war led to its dissolution and lord palmerston became prime minister lord clarendon foreign minister 
while mr gladstone retained his post as chancellor of the exchequer yet only for a short time on the appointment of the committee to examine into the conduct of the war he resigned his post and was succeeded by sir g c lewis at this crisis the emperor nicholas of russia died and the cabinet with a large preponderance of whigs having everything their own way determined to prosecute the war to the bitter end yet the great services and abilities of gladstone as finance minister were everywhere conceded not only for his skill in figures but for his wisdom in selecting and imposing duties that were acceptable to the country and did not press heavily upon the poor thus following out the policy which sir robert peel bequeathed ever since this has been the aim as well as the duty of a chancellor of the exchequer whatever party has been in the ascendant from this time onward mr gladstone was a pronounced freelancer of the manchester school his conscientious studies into the mutual relations of taxation production and commerce had convinced him that national prosperity lay along the line of freedom of endeavor he had taken a great departure from the principles he had originally advocated which of course provoked a bitter opposition from his former friends and allies he was no longer the standard-bearer of the conservative party but swung more and more by degrees from his old policy as light dawned upon his mind and experience taught him wisdom perhaps the most remarkable characteristics of this man opinionated and strong-headed as he undoubtedly is are to be found in the receptive quality of his mind by which he is open to new ideas and in the steady courage with which he affirms and stands by his convictions when once he has by reasoning arrived at them it took thirteen years of parliamentary strife before the peelites whom he led were finally incorporated with the liberal party mr gladstone now without office became what is called an independent member of the house yet active in watching public interests giving his vote and influence to measures which he considered would be most beneficial to the country irrespective of party meantime the continued mistakes of the war and the financial burdens incident to a conflict of such magnitude had gradually produced disaffection with the government of which lord palmerston was the head the ministry defeated on an unimportant matter but one which showed the animus of the country was compelled to resign and the conservatives no longer known by the opprobrious nickname of tories came into power eighteen fifty eight under the premiership of lord derby disraeli becoming chancellor of the exchequer and leader of his own party in the house of commons but this administration was also short-lived lasting only about a year and in june eighteen fifty nine a new coalition ministry was again formed under lord palmerston which continued seven years mr gladstone returning to his old post as chancellor of the exchequer mr gladstone was at this time fifty years of age his political career thus far however useful and honorable had not been extraordinary mr pitt was prime minister at the age of twenty-eight fox canning and castlereagh at forty were more famous than gladstone his political promotion had not been as rapid as that of lord john russell or lord palmerston or sir robert peel he was chiefly distinguished for the eloquence of his speeches the lucidity of his financial statements and the moral purity of his character but he was not then preeminently great either for initiative genius or commanding influence aside from politics he was conceded to be an accomplished scholar and a learned theologian distinguished for ecclesiastical lore rather than as an original thinker he had written no great book likely to be a standard authority as a writer he was inferior to macaulay and newman nor had he the judicial powers of hallam he could not be said to have occupied more than one sphere that of politics here unlike thiers guizot and even lyndhurst and brougham in eighteen fifty eight however gladstone appeared in a new light and commanded immediate attention by the publication of his studies on homer and the homeric age 
a remarkable work in three large octavo volumes which called into the controversial field of greek history a host of critics like mr freeman who yet conceded to mr gladstone wonderful classic learning and the more wonderful as he was preoccupied with affairs of state and without the supposed leisure for erudite studies this learned work entitled him to a high position in another sphere than that of politics guizot wrote learned histories of modern political movements but he could not have written so able a treatise as gladstone's on the homeric age some advanced german critics took exceptions to the author's statements about early greek history yet it cannot be questioned that he has thrown a bright if not a new light on the actors of the siege of troy and the age when they were supposed to live the illustrious author is no agnostic it is not for want of knowledge that in some things he is not up to the times but for a conservative bent of mind which leads him to distrust destructive criticism gladstone has been content to present the ancient world as revealed in the homeric poems whether homer lived less than a hundred years from the heroic deeds described with such inimitable charm or whether he did not live at all he wrote the book not merely to amuse his leisure hours but to incite students to a closer study of the works attributed to him who alone is enrolled with two other men now regarded as the greatest of immortal poets gladstone's admiration for homer is as unbounded as that of german scholars for dante and shakespeare it is hardly to be supposed that this work on the heroic age was written during the author's retirement from office it was probably the result of his life studies on grecian literature which he pursued with unusual and genuine enthusiasm who among american statesmen or even scholars are competent to such an undertaking two years after this in eighteen sixty mr gladstone was elected lord rector of the university of edinburgh in recognition of his scholarly attainments and delivered a notable inaugural address on the work of universities the chief duty of mr gladstone during his seven years connection with the new coalition party headed by lord palmerston was to prepare his annual budget or financial statement with a proposed scheme of taxation as chancellor of the exchequer during these years his fame as a finance minister was confirmed as such no minister ever equaled him except perhaps sir robert peel my limits will not permit me to go into a minute detail of the taxes he increased and those he reduced the end he proposed in general was to remove such as were oppressive on the middle and lower classes and to develop the industrial resources of the nation to make it richer and more prosperous while it felt the burden of supplying needful monies for the government less onerous nor would it be interesting to americans to go into those statistics i wonder even why they were so interesting to the english people one would naturally think that it was of little consequence whether duties on some one commodity were reduced or those on another were increased so long as the deficit in the national income had to be raised somehow whether by direct or indirect taxation but the interest generally felt in these matters was intense both inside and outside parliament i can understand why the paper-makers should object when it was proposed to remove the last protective duty and why the publicans should wax indignant if an additional tax were imposed on hops but i cannot understand why every member of the house of commons should be present when the opening speech on the budget was to be made by the chancellor why the intensest excitement should prevail why members should sit for five hours enraptured to hear financial details presented why every seat in the galleries should be taken by distinguished visitors and all the journals the next day should be filled with panegyrics or detractions as to the minister's ability or wisdom 
it would seem that no questions concerning war or peace or the extension of the suffrage or the removal of great moral evils or promised boons in education or church disestablishment or threatened dangers to the state questions touching the very life of the nation received so much attention or excited so great interest as those which affected the small burdens which the people had to bear not the burden of taxation itself but how that should be distributed i will not say that the english are a nation of shopkeepers but i do say that comparatively small matters occupy the thoughts of men in every country outside the routine of ordinary duties and form the staple of ordinary conversation among pedants the difference between ach and et among aristocrats the investigation of pedigrees in society the comparative merits of horses the movements of well-known persons the speed of ocean steamers boat races the dresses of ladies of fashion football contests the last novel weddings receptions the trials of housekeepers the claims of rival singers the gestures and declamation of favorite play actors the platitudes of popular preachers the rise and fall of stocks murders in bar-rooms robberies in stores accidental fires in distant localities these and other innumerable forms of gossip collected by newspapers and retailed in drawing-rooms which have no important bearing on human life or national welfare or immortal destiny it is not that the elaborate presentations of financial details for which mr gladstone was so justly famous were without importance i only wonder why they should have had such overwhelming interest to english legislators and the english public and why his statistics should have given him claims to transcendent oratory and the profoundest statesmanship for it is undeniable that his financial speeches brought him more fame and importance in the house of commons than all the others he made during those seven years of parliamentary gladiatorship one of these triumphantly carried through parliament a commercial reciprocity treaty with france arranged by mr cobden and another scarcely less notable repealed the duty on paper a measure of great importance for the facilitation of making books and cheapening newspapers but both of which were desperately opposed by the monopolists and manufacturers some of mr gladstone's other speeches stand on higher ground and are of permanent value they will live for the lofty sentiments and the comprehensive knowledge which marked them appealing to the highest intellect as well as to the hearts of those common people of whom all nations are chiefly composed among these might be mentioned those which related to italian affairs sympathizing with the struggle which the italians were making to secure constitutional liberty and the unity of their nation severe on the despotism of that miserable king of naples francis the second whom garibaldi had overthrown with a handful of men mr gladstone ever since his last visit to naples had abominated the outrages which its government had perpetrated on a gallant and aspiring people and warmly supported them by his eloquence in the same friendly spirit in eighteen fifty eight he advocated in parliament a free constitution for the ionian islands then under british rule and when sent thither as british commissioner he addressed the senate of those islands at corfu in the italian language the islands were by their own desire finally ceded to greece whose prosperity as an independent and united nation mr gladstone ever had at heart the land of homer to him was hallowed ground on one subject mr gladstone made a great mistake which he afterward squarely acknowledged and this was in reference to the american civil war in eighteen sixty two while chancellor of the exchequer he made a speech at newcastle in which he expressed his conviction that jefferson davis had already succeeded in making the southern states of america which were in revolt an independent nation this opinion caused a great sensation in both england and the united states 
and alienated many friends especially as earl russell the minister of foreign affairs had refused to recognize the confederate states it was this indiscretion of the chancellor of the exchequer which disturbed some of his warmest supporters in england but in america the pain arose from the fact that so great a man had expressed such an opinion a man moreover for whom america had then and still has the greatest admiration and reverence it was feared that his sympathies like those of a great majority of the upper classes in england at the time were with the south rather than the north and chiefly because the english manufacturers had to pay twenty shillings instead of eight pence a pound for cotton it was natural for a manufacturing country to feel this injury to its interests but it was not magnanimous in view of the tremendous issues which were at stake and it was inconsistent with the sacrifices which england had nobly made in the emancipation of her own slaves in the west indies for england to give her moral support to the revolted southern states founding their confederacy upon the baneful principle of human slavery was a matter of grave lamentation with patriots at the north to say nothing of the apparent english indifference to the superior civilization of the free states and the great cause to which they were devoted in a struggle of life and death it even seemed to some that the english aristocracy were hypocritical in their professions and at heart were hostile to the progress of liberty that the nation as a whole cared more for money than justice as seemingly illustrated by the war with china to enforce the opium trade against the protest of the chinese government pagan as it was end of section nineteen